Hey, good evening, everybody. How are we doing? You survived the snow and the sleet and the rain. I was driving on the way here, and I, um, I thought that I wiped all the snow off of my car, and then my wipers were free to do their wiping. And I was driving mid-road, Tim, the busy traffic behind me, when a chunk of snow fell down in front of my windshield, leaving me blind. Wipers didn't do any wiping whatsoever. And isn't that just life sometimes, right? Huh? How's that for a sermon starter? Um, you guys, we are in Lenten season right now. This is our first Sunday of Lent. This past Wednesday was Ash Wednesday. And um, we're doing a series. It's called, I Heard the Savior Say. Here's the, the impetus behind this series, why we are where we are. Um, I feel like, Debbie and I, we've talked, other people we've talked, uh, there's almost this sense where every holy season, we find ourselves walking past the cross a little quickly. Like Good Friday often gets relegated to just a Friday night emotional event, when it should be this formative and expansive experience that lasts beyond an hour or two. And so when we think about the crucifixion of our brother Jesus, when we think about Good Friday and the life that was lost on that day, how do we stick around the cross a little bit longer? How do we climb to the top of Skull Hill to actually see and hear and experience what it is that what happened on that space and what it is that it speaks into our lives? And so what we're going to do for this series is we're going to look at the last seven words that Jesus spoke as he died on the cross. And the first word, if I can just put my cards on the table real quick, I don't really know how to speak about this first word. Um, here's my logic. Is Andrea Johnson here right now? Okay, not a faithful attender. Everyone take note. <laughs> I remember talking with Andrea a couple of years ago where we were talking, she was sharing uh, a little bit about this beautiful experience she had with God, uh, this divine, mystical encounter and as she started to go into her story she said something in effect was like man i don't really feel comfortable talking about this because in doing so i almost have to cheapen the experience like words in and of itself i cannot wrap words around this moment without making the moment smaller than it actually was so it just feels that way similarly that's how i feel about this text in luke 23 the first word that we hear from jesus on the cross it feels too big to try to put words on for me it's too beautiful. It is, for me, Christ at his best. It's stunningly beautiful. It's moving. And I want to set the stage real quick to tell you exactly why that is so. So moments before Christ on the cross. Think about the moment as we are entering into it. Jesus has just been betrayed by one of his closest of friends with a kiss. He's been a victim in an illegal court matter. He's been brutalized by the local police. He's had the crowds turn on him, spit on him, speak vile things about his name. And then he has two beams strapped to his bleeding back, and he's asked to walk up a hill. When he gets to the top of this hill, the four soldiers who escorted him from the bottom to the top, they, pursue to, they proceed to lay him down on top of the beams that he had just carried. They drive they drove spikes through his hands and through his feet as the crowds are spitting on his body, screaming at him. And then after the nails have been driven through the hands and through the feet, they lift the Christ on the cross into the air. 
And strangely enough, you know, we don't pick up on this all the time, but there is a step that seems to be skipped. Usually for Romans, when they are doing these executions, uh, what they would do to make it a more family event is they would, this is going to get gross, but they'd cut the tongues out of the crucified. Reason being is that it usually if people didn't have their tongues cut up, by the time that they were up on the cross with the nails in their hands and in their feet, they would start cursing out everybody that's around them, blaspheming God, yelling at their parents, blaming them for the day that they let them get born. And yet Jesus' tongue stays intact. We don't know the logic behind why that is so. Perhaps it had something to do with the fact that he had just been whipped to the point of death and people thought he doesn't have much left in his tank anyways. Why bother with something like that? But then as he is lifted up into the air and as his body starts to tremble and as his breathing starts to slow down, they notice that his mouth starts to move and they notice that his lips begin to part. And as the crowd inches closer to hear the cursing that's about to come, to hear about the rage that this man has for those who are around him, for those who put him in this predicament, for those who nailed him to this cross, where they expected to hear curses, they instead experienced compassion. Jesus, dying, lifts himself up with the nails that are in his wrists, expands his diaphragm, just a few more breaths left. And he looks down at the four soldiers who are gambling beneath him. And he says, forgive them, Father. Forgive them. Now, we with the crowd, we'd, we'd ask that question, why would we do something like that? And we, alongside of the crowd, would hear Jesus groan one more time, as he says, because they have no idea what they're doing. I used to hate this text because it's not really true. They, they knew what they were doing. The, the Romans were like the first to really perfect the work of torture. They knew how to make an experience as painful as it possibly could be and to last as long as it needed to. They knew what they were doing. They had this all mapped out. This, they didn't accidentally murder this man. There are such things as agency and responsibility and accountability, and that's all true. And yet Jesus seems to see something a little bit deeper. Jesus looks at the four beneath him who are gambling over his clothes, and he doesn't see the top layer of the surface. He sees the bottom layer of the substance. He sees the four people that are gambling over his clothes. And he says, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing because they don't really know who they are. They don't know their way back home because they don't remember that they have a home to go to. They don't know how to be lovely because they don't know how loved they already are. And so even if my blood is on their hands, I refuse to stop holding them in mind. Even as they act like monsters in this moment, I refuse to stop seeing them as my children. I won't stop seeing them as more than the worst thing they've ever done. And the logic almost seems to be that if Christ isn't the first to do that, will we ever see ourselves as more than the worst thing that we've ever done? 
Forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they're doing. It's not surprising to me that if you are following along and you are looking in Luke 23 in your Bibles, you'll notice that there's an asterisk. Is it an asterisk? Or, how do you say that word? That was close enough, right? There's a star next to it. And it says something to the effect of how this text right here is not in the original manuscripts. Think about that early church. I don't know if you guys saw that, um, that Paul movie. But you have bodies that are being burned to lit up the streets of Rome. You have lions that are tearing apart families. Might there be some reasons why in the first renditions of this scripture, they didn't want this line from Jesus' mouth to be as part of their script that they'd have to speak? That image of the Christ extending compassion and kindness to his killers is not an appealing one, so it's not surprising to me that they didn't want that piece in the text at first. The problem, of course, is that you can take this text out of the gospel, but the story still stands. And one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot this week is I've been meditating on this first word of Jesus and trying to understand what is its significance for us in our lives today is that when I looked at this, the scope of the Jesus story from the vantage point of the, the cross on Calvary, you recognize that this posture towards his perpetrators, this father forgive them because they have no idea what they're doing, that stance right there that is not absent of accountability but it does have an empathy that's actually one of the most consistent uh, and defining characteristics that comes up again and again in Jesus' life. And in one particular moment in the Gospel of Luke, probably the moment um, that we all are most familiar with when we think about Luke, uh, I see it in there like I had not seen before, and I want to show you what that looked like. There is a moment in Luke 15 that looks like the moment on the cross, though we often will miss that if we don't look closely enough. In Luke 15, in the first verse, it tells the story of uh, Jesus. And it says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. You see, we often rush straight to the stories that he's about to tell, but this opening scene actually has a lot to say inside of it. The Pharisees say that this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. You know that you can only be welcoming to those who want to be welcomed, correct? If that girl doesn't want to go on a date with you, you can't welcome her to join you at the Olive Garden. Do you get what I'm saying? You can only welcome those who want to be welcomed. Now that seems dumb, but when we think about Jesus, how we tell the story of Jesus, we say that Jesus was a friend to sinners, which is true. That's beautiful. That's compelling. That's, that's, that's true. Jesus was a friend to sinners, but that's not what the text is saying here. Jesus wasn't just a friend to sinners, Jesus was also a friend of sinners, and that preposition matters. Because if he's a friend of sinners and not just a friend to sinners, if he is not just warming them up but is actually welcoming them as well, then Jesus wasn't just kind to the outcast, Jesus was also called a friend by the outcasts. If you have these people, the tax collectors and sinners, the one who are bearing the blame for Rome being in town and oppression being what it was, the ones who all fingers are pointing at and say that the reason why things are a hot mess like they are is because you guys are a mess. If they are calling you a friend, it means that when Jesus wasn't in the room with them and they started talking about who they liked and who they didn't like, they all agreed that the Nazarene 
was worthy of being on the list of those that they liked. Jesus welcomed them. They wanted to be around Jesus and he welcomed them. That's important as we go forward in these stories. Jesus then has three, uh, we don't know how many. I don't know why I said three. Take that away. Pretend like that didn't happen. Pharisees show up in the doorway. They're not psyched about what's happening. They see the meal laid out. They see who's present at the table and they say that if you are a representative of God, then you have to actually live like God lives. You can't be around those that God doesn't want you to be around because God's not around them, so neither should you be. Then Jesus, instead of reacting in anger to this accusation that you are not godly enough, which, is there anything more frustrating and agonizing and exhausting than being told by religious folk that you are not godly enough, that you are not doing it right, that you're messing everything up? Like how many of us have been angry and reactive and said things, be it face to face or on Twitter or somewhere else, because somebody said that we weren't meeting the standard of holiness that they themselves had set. What's amazing about this text is that Jesus does not ball his fists. He doesn't puff out his chest. He doesn't call on the Father to smite them. He calls these Pharisees forward and he says, can I tell you a story? Matter of fact, if you have time, can I tell you three? First story he tells them. He says, let me tell you about this shepherd. Imagine, if you will, that there is a shepherd who has 100 sheep. And when he comes home at night, after hustling all the sheep back into the barn, when the night has come, it's all dark. They've been grazing all the live long day. When he comes home and he has them in the barn and he starts going head by head by head and counting them from 1 to 100, he pulls up short and he ends up at 99. Does the count again. 99. Does the count again. 99. Jesus then says that this shepherd who is one sheep shy of the full flock, he goes out looking for the missing sheep. And when Jesus is saying this, he's saying much more than just that. He's not talking about just the methodology of shepherds. He's talking about the mathematics of God's heart. What he's trying to convey is that if this shepherd is going out and looking for the one missing sheep while he's got the 99 back in the barn, please understand that 99% inclusion rate is not sufficient for God. Either it's a full hundred or it's not a full house. If Johnny's not here, the family's not here. If Jenny isn't here, then the family's not here. And the shepherd is stirred. The shepherd will not sleep until the family is all back in one place. So Jesus says the shepherd recognizes their one sheep shy and goes out looking for that sheep, finds the sheep, puts the sheep on his shoulders, would have been hard work, carries him back home. Shepherd then calls up all of his friends and family and says, we need to have a party. Because we had a sheep that was missing that now is found. Jesus says that just like that story right there, that's what it's like in heaven when somebody who's gone a wandering comes back home. We get loud and crazy just like that. Now, if you're in the room, Pharisees, or you're in the room as a tax collector and you're sitting around that table and you're hearing this story, you're obviously trying to play it out in your mind. You're extrapolating upon like, what, what's, what's the point he's trying to make right now? He heard me muttering in the doorway. What's he trying to say? feels pretty obvious, right? Jesus is saying the tax collector was the sheep that goes wandering, just came home. 
I should be as juiced about that as Jesus is, yet I'm not, so I'm in the wrong, point taken, Jesus. Apparently not, though, because Jesus goes into a second story, which is actually very similar to the first story. Jesus moves from talking about a shepherd to talking about a woman, from talking about a hundred sheep to talking about ten coins. Jesus says that there once was a woman who had ten coins, which would have been like her retirement plan. Like that was her life savings that were expected to carry her forward for the rest of her days. There once was a woman who had ten coins, and she went into her purse one afternoon, and one of the coins was missing. So she turned the house upside down looking for this coin and could not find it. Checked in every creek, checked in every crevice. This missing coin was nowhere to be found until one day she noticed that there it was under that couch cushion. She retrieves the coin. She's not just satisfied with finding the missing coin. She now sends out again, like the shepherd did, that group text that says, we are going to get down to light tonight like we've never gotten down before because I had a coin that was missing, and that coin is now back here. And that matters. And Jesus, redundant maybe, but he says again, just like that woman who found that missing coin, heaven goes crazy every time somebody who was missing gets found and comes home. Somebody who recognizes their proper place of belonging and experiences the flourishing that comes inside of that. Now at this point, in that room, if you're a tax collector or a sinner, as you, they were called in that time, you're sitting around that table and you think like, yeah, Jesus, that's good. Like that's, that's, that was me, I was that coin. I was the missing coin, you're home, I, you are coming to my defense. You're an ally, you're an advocate, you're on my side, and boy, am I grateful. If you are a Pharisee standing in the doorway, arms crossed, brow furled, if you're looking at this story, you're going, Jesus, point taken. I get it. We need to be, as we need to come to the party, we need to celebrate that what was missing is now found. And that's fine, we will, as long as the missing sheep, as long as the missing coin starts to act right. As long as they start behaving like us 99 sheep. As long as they do what we do as the, as the remaining nine coins. If they can play their part and live honorable lives, dirt free, yeah, we'll come to the party. We'll have some cake. This is all Jesus building a crescendo, reaching the climax. Because Jesus looks at both the tax collectors and he looks at the Pharisees. And he says there once was a man who had two sons, two sons. And one day, the younger son came to the dad and said, you know, I don't want to be here anymore. I'm not feeling the connection. This place is too small for somebody like me. I don't want to be your son, and I don't want you to be my dad. And so the money that I will get when you die, I prefer to have it now and live as if you are dead. It's a disgusting and dishonorable request, and yet, for reasons unbeknownst to us, uh, the father honors it. He gives him his inheritance. And the boy goes running until the boy runs out. Jesus says that the kid, after spending his money on wild living, he ends up knee deep in a hog pen where he realizes that the guy that he's working for won't even let him have a bite of the pig food. 
And in the old King James version of the text, it says that it was there in the mud and the muck of the hog pen that he finally came to himself. This is Jesus talking about a salvation moment right here. Now, that might sound strange because you think like, well, he came to himself. He didn't come to God. Well, that's, that's right. That's what salvation looks like. It's not coming to God because coming to God presume, presupp- maybe? presupposes that God had already left. Thank you. Appreciate it. All apologies to um, Bill. Is it Pascal? There is not a God-shaped hole in our heart because God never left. What happens, though, is that we often leave ourselves, and so we do not recognize the presence of God. This is David in the Psalms saying, you know, I try. Even if I made my bed in hell, I can't outrun you. I can't escape you. There you are. So when he comes to himself, he starts to get a sniff on his actual substance, who he actually is. He gets a glimpse at the Imago Day, and he says, here I am in this hog pen, but there once was a home that I belonged to. Might not have the full image yet, but there once was a home that I belonged to. He knew not what he did, but suddenly he started to wake up to this better story that once he believed to be true, and he turns back home. He heads back to Dab. And when he gets there with his head hanging low and his apology script in hand and all of the reasons why he can still be a hired hand at the house and help out here and there, even if he can't reclaim what now has been lost, he doesn't get one word out before the dad is sweeping him up in his arms. Right as the kid is about to explain why he still deserves to just be a servant, the dad is sliding a ring onto his finger and saying, you have always been a son and you will always be a son. this beautiful story, this third story, this climax of the moment, and I go back to that room again that's been doing throughout this week, and I think about what the Pharisees might have been thinking about, because some of them inevitably would have heard the two stories and seen the connection, they would have seen the third story and seen the connection, but they would have noticed also, maybe not all, but some of them would have noticed that something had changed. The pattern didn't stay intact like we thought it would. You see, in the first story, the sheep was found. In the second story, the coin was found. Nobody was found in the third story. If if this whole conversation is about what is lost and now is found, what was missing but now is here, something's missing because this boy was not found. The dad did not go out to the distant country to find him. Didn't do that boy came to himself and then he came back home. So how do we know what was lost then? The previous two stories, we do know how we know what was lost. We know the coin was lost because the woman went looking for it. We know that the sheep was lost because the shepherd went looking for it. We don't know who was lost in this story because the father didn't go looking for anyone, at least not yet. The father says, we're going to throw a party, kill the fatted calf, turn up the music. And they get to the party, and the drinks are being poured. And it is festive in the air when the dad notices that everything is right except somebody is missing. And for the first time in the story, the dad does what he did not do before. 
he goes looking for the eldest son, the one who was not at the party, the one who was lost. And as he goes outside and he sees his eldest boy laying against the sycamore tree, looking down at the parties that's unfolding, he can see, even if it's dark, the tears straining and streaking down his cheeks. And he says to him, where are you, boy? What happened to you? And the boy says, my entire life I've been slaving for you. You wouldn't even give me a goat for me and my friends to celebrate. And yet here is this punk kid. This kid who can do no wrong, he comes home, and you dump even more money on him. You waste even more money on him. And the father says, slavery? That's what this has been to you? This whole time, you, have, you thought this was slavery? It's amazing how if you have a bad story, how what should be celebration ends up feeling like slavery. The eldest son hears his dad talking. He hears his dad lean into him and say, everything I have is yours and you have always been with me. We call this story the prodigal son, prodigal meaning waste. Who's the prodigal son in the story? Is it the boy who wasted all the money on a distant country or the boy who has had his entire life at a party but has never been inside? He's been stuck in a story that doesn't work. Now be in that room. This is offensive to the Pharisees, right? Because all of a sudden they realize that the pattern that was in place for the first two stories it still holds true for the third story but it's not a favorable truth. Because in this third story, it shows that while they thought that the missing sheep and the lost coin were stand-ins for the tax collectors and sinners, they now realize that Jesus has been talking about them the whole time. That's a hard lesson to hear. But it's almost unbearable for the tax collectors and sinners. Because for those who have pushed them out, those who have condemned them, kicked them out of the synagogue, been telling them for years that the reason why we have these foreign occupiers in our lands, the reason why life is the mess the way it is because it's your fault, for them to hear Jesus say that those guys at the door, they are the son that I want at the party to. I mean, how does that feel to you? Do you want to include those who have excluded you? Do you want to be kind to those who want to crush you? There's a truth that I'm realizing in my life that we need to be very careful as people, as human beings, as we grow spiritually or even religiously that we don't move from one version of fundamentalism to another version of fundamentalism. That after being excluded, we don't come to that place where we need to exclude the excluders. That when we move past that stage of judgment, we don't get to that place where we judge all of our judges and make sure that our party is only for the 99 while leaving the one outside. 
we hear these stories, these parables of Jesus, and we think that's Jesus wrapping his arms around the tax collectors and the sinners and saying, they belong in this story. And that's true, but it's bigger than that. Because it's also Jesus reaching out to those in the doorway and saying, you belong here too. But it begins with that empathetic understanding that's perfectly defined at the cross. I recognize that they don't have all the answers and neither do I. We don't know what we're doing. And as mad as I may be of the things that they say, as hurt as I might be as the wounds that they have left, as angry as I might be as the things that they are standing for, the people that they are voting for, all of that. To follow Christ all the way to the cross is to recognize that I cannot skip by their personhood and stay on the surface. I have to see them as more than the characters that I've built up in my mind. That is the good news of the gospel that liberates us from all of this. That's not an easy word. Again, I get why the church left that out for three years. Three years. Longer than that. Why do I keep saying three, Anna? But it's the gospel. I want to show a video at the end of this. Let me give a disclaimer. I showed this video once and I had a mom write me like a two-page letter saying that I was the worst thing that ever lived because I inflicted this upon her child. And so if you have kids and you're not interested in writing one of those letters, this might be a little bit intense. Fair warning? Or if you are Tyler and you don't feel comfortable, you can leave too. But I want to show this video because for me, this is the gospel in a two-minute scene from the movie Blood Diamond. For me, this is Jesus being gun held at his head and yet not holding it against them, begging on their behalf, trying to get them to see what they have failed to yet see. Watch the video. What are you doing? Dia! Nyangbe! Nyangbe! What are you doing? Bela Diavanti of the proud Mende tribe. You are a good boy who loves soccer and school. Your mother loves you so much. She waits by the fire making plantains and red palm oil stew with your sister yonder. And you do, baby? The cows wait for you. And Babu, the wild dog who wants no one but you. Hmm? I know they made you do bad things, but you're not a bad boy. I am your father, who loves you. And you will come home with me and be my son again. Jesus 
Jesus, help us, Lord, to see God, that we forgive those who hurt us, God, because we know that that's the only way to freedom. God, that we are just as enchained in our anger as we feel like they should be in their responsibility. God, give us the courage to recognize that in the moment we start dehumanizing those who first dehumanized us, we are just reinforcing the power of the very same weapons that we are saying that we are against. And we can't reach for that kind of power and hold on to the Christ on the cross at the same time. Help us to speak in a way that helps people see who they really are that they are loved, that they are enough. In Christ's name, we ask for this kind of freedom. Amen. I heard a Savior say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I was thinking as Matt was speaking that how often do we think, oh, that would never be us. We would never be those soldiers gambling at the foot of the cross. But we are those soldiers. We are the lost sheep and the lost coin and the older brother and the younger brother. And we are all of those things because we get distracted and we wander. And we get religious and self-righteous and we, we forget. But when we come together on Sunday nights and we take communion together, we celebrate that God that said, Father, forgive them. We celebrate the God that meets us wherever we're at. We remember a God who says, no matter who you are or what you've done or who you love or what you've lost, you always have a place that you belong to me, that you are beloved. We celebrate Jesus who welcomes everybody. And thank God he does. The night before Jesus was betrayed, he sat at a table with his disciples and he broke bread. And he said, this is my body broken for you. When you eat this, remember me. And he took wine and he poured it into the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you, the new covenant. When you drink from this cup, remember me. And so when we take the bread and we dip it into the cup, we remember a God that welcomes all of us, every single one of us, to his table. A God that holds us in his arms. During the music, we invite you to come up as you'd like. There'll be gluten-free elements right up here on the front and gluten-full on the sides. So stand with me and together we pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. 
and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.